all I can ever think about is a wrinkle in time when it's the gray world and everyone's bouncing the ball at the same. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that they have to bounce the ball at the exact same rhythm. It's it's a completely controlled town that's gray. And that's when I hear this description, that's just where my mind goes. So maybe that's why I feel like icky brainwash. But I just see people like acting the same exact way. And for someone like Izzy, who would be very free spirited, that would be suffocating. She would do everything she could to get out of that. It's a perfect setting for a story, though, because these communities exist because they have a, a comfort level, because everything is the same. You have expectations are constantly met and there's just this very evenness to it. The moment you have a disruptive event, an inciting incident, it explodes. It's just a rich opportunity for a, a great story. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. The way that we do this on Lit Match is that we interview literary agents. You'll find episodes there. I also have first chapter deep dive analysis episodes where we take a close look at the first chapter and why it would hook a reader's attention, set up big stake expectations, and create a well-structured scene that continually engages the reader and gets them to turn the page. Also, I have some episodes that I've just recently started where I do author interviews and follow the author interviews with big takeaways that I pulled from the interview accompanied by writing assignments. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and developmental editor who is passionate about helping writers grow their writing craft, become less intimidated by the literary agent research process, and learning more about the publishing industry so that you can start to blend passion with business in a way that is fun and insightful and not intimidating and overwhelming. Today, I am thrilled to dig into another first chapter deep dive analysis with you. I am bringing on my writing friend who I have known for several years now. She did a masterwork class for me that I did for a charity pre-pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic. And then she continued to do a woman's fiction masterwork class that I created that applied a lot of writing knowledge for one of my genre-focused classes. And now I'm so lucky to call her a friend and someone that I continually learn story with and get to support along her writer's journey. Her name is Jennifer Klepper, and Jennifer is a lawyer, a USA Today bestselling author, and a startup founder. Born and raised in Iowa and Nebraska, Jennifer attended college in Dallas, law school in Charlottesville, and worked in Texas and Massachusetts before settling for good in Maryland. She's worked for big law, small law, startups, and Google. She lives in a forest by a river near Annapolis, Maryland, with her family, and her favorite color is sunset. For today, I asked Jennifer what first chapter deep dive analysis she'd want to do. We brainstormed a couple authors and ultimately settled on Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere. This is a masterwork in my opinion, and I actually had quite a difficult time pinpointing the commandments in my scene analysis, but there's so much richness in every detail and every line in this first chapter, and I'm thrilled to dig deep into it with Jennifer and all of this, of course, with you as well. So if you'd like to do a first chapter deep dive analysis of Little Fires Everywhere, 
I'd love to hear what you came up with. Have fun with it. Enjoy the ride. And here we go. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me today on Lit Match. Jennifer picked Little Fires Everywhere for the first chapter deep dive scene analysis today. And I'm really excited that you picked this one. I actually taught this one to my high school students when I taught creative writing back in high school. And I have to say, this first chapter was challenging. I had to read this several times, and I still think that there's a lot of debate on how this scene is really going to speak to the big picture and small picture in great ways. And thank you for picking this one, and thanks for coming on. It's so good to have you here. I'm so excited to be here, Abigail. And this book is one that has been on my shelf. I listened to it first, and I loved it so much that I bought the print version because I really wanted to dig into how she accomplished what she did with her story and her characters. She is an amazing writer, and she's one of those that I think it, you could read the stories over and over again, and every time you read it, you're going to find more and more intention and purpose on the line level, as much as the scene and structure level as well. So great pick. It's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging. And before we get into that, I do like to remind listeners who have not listened to one of the first chapter deep dive analysis episodes on Lit Match. If you have, you know what the structure of these are. But if you haven't, what we do is we look at the big picture first. So we use seven key questions to analyze a strong first chapter, which come from Paula Muniz, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then after that, we start to zero in and we look on the scene level and we do a micro or scene analysis to analyze how the plot moves forward or how the characters are developed and why ultimately this first chapter has purpose on both the scene and big picture level. Because of course, every scene should be also serving the big picture. And before we even get into that, Jennifer, you picked this one. I'd love to know why you loved this book and why it stood out to you. Well, I'm always a sucker for a book with multi-POV. And this book has a wealth of, of a cast with intriguing characters in all different spaces. And she introduces almost a dizzying array of them in the very beginning in this opening chapter. And she does it with such depth in such a short amount of time that it's a great indication that the rest of the book is going to feel the same, where we get to see the scene from various perspectives. And I always think that adds layers of richness to a story. So that's one of the things I love. The other is I love the layering of relationships between just people within a family, people outside the family, and then within the society itself, which pulls in these heavier society issues that hit people at the society level, but then the family level and then the individual level. So I just feel like there's so many layers in this particular story and Celestine really brings it all to life. I agree. When I first read this, I knew it was one that I was going to read multiple times because there's so much to unpack. And like you mentioned, there's a lot going on on the society level and the injustices that really go on in the everyday society. And then within that, what I think Celestine does a really amazing job is, is exactly what you just said. She's able to focus on individuals within a relationship and show how there's a power struggle within the Richardson family. And there's all these deep-rooted issues that are going on there. And she ties that to a greater picture that's going on within the society itself. So she kept the universe really small 
But I think that within that universe, it speaks to understanding how there could be some severe societal issues that extend beyond Shaker Heights. And that can actually even start within the family. So definitely a lot to explore. These characters, some of these characters are wild. So we'll get into that in just a bit. With that being said, let's head into the big picture, the seven key questions that we'll use to analyze the first chapter. I'm going to give a brief summary of what happens in this first chapter first. Of course, I encourage you to go read the first chapter before or after this episode if you'd like to learn even more from it. A chaotic commotion disturbs the little town of Shaker Heights, which is in Ohio, as a great black cloud of smoke rises from the Richardson house. Mrs. Richardson, who will later be known as Elena, sleeps in on a Saturday morning only for the blare of her smoke alarms to wake her up. She searches for three of her four children who are all absent and only realizes as she watches the house burn down that she didn't look for her youngest, Izzy, who everyone assumes burned the house down intentionally, setting little fires throughout the house. One by one, with the exception of Izzy, the Richardson family members return home to watch the firemen put out what is a helpless cause. Lexi, the oldest, and Trap, the second oldest, have no doubts that Izzy is responsible and are amused by what their parents will do to Izzy when she comes home. They assume that she'll just have severe punishment. While they're having all this banter on the side, Lexi makes the comment as she notices her mother standing alone, watching the house burn down, that someone should go over and stand there with her, but no children make a move to do so. Instead, Lexi and Trout continue to talk about Izzy. Moody, who is the third oldest child, is the only one to question if Izzy would be responsible and he also calls out Lexi and Trap for always picking on Izzy. The town and the family disassume, and they even quote this as a little lunatic. And Moody questions if the reason why she might behave the way she does is because of how others treat her. And this is how the scene ends. Basically, Lexi and Trap assume that Izzy's going to come home, and Moody questions if they'll even ever find her again. That's the end of that chapter. And we will move into the seven key first chapter questions. So this is looking at a macro or a big picture look when you have a first chapter. We want to see context clues or basically how the scene event itself and everything that's all the detail within it is speaking to the big picture of the story. The first question focuses on genre. And the question is, what kind of story is it? So what do you think about that, Jennifer? Well, I think it's we already referenced it. It's a society story. It's a story about the struggle between the haves and the haves-nots, the people in power and the people who are out of power. Absolutely. I do think we very much are dealing with a domestic power struggle here. So if you were to look at this, that's a content genre. So when we, I like to just specify the differences between content genres. So we're dealing with story type. I use like story grid genre categories, story types to do this, which would be society in this case. And then there is commercial genre. In other words, this is how when you go into a bookstore, where would little fires everywhere be placed? And commercial genre is mainly used as a marketing tool to help you sell the book. So if I were to look at little fires everywhere as a commercial genre, I'm probably going to call this something like domestic suspense or maybe literary fiction. I think it would probably fall in those categories. And then as the content genre, the story type, society is without a doubt what I think the story is. It's interesting because the first chapter itself doesn't give you a ton of detail within the family other than you know that Izzy, it seems, has been definitely preyed on by the family. So you can see that. But we also, and I left this actually out of the summary because it was more backstory, but it's very important. 
there's Mia and her daughter Pearl, who are tenants of Mrs. Richardson, who have returned the keys. And that was the whole reason why Elena or Mrs. Richardson had slept in. You get a sense that there is more to the story than is being told within the first chapter. But we're really going to start to get into the details of how deep this society is going to go in the second chapter when we can really see this delusional, altruistic motivation of Mrs. Richardson and why she picks Mia and Pearl to be the tenants. For the second question, we'll focus on plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? This is a tough one. When you, If you're only reading the first chapter, to me, the story is about why did Izzy start the house on fire and run away? So I'm expecting the rest of the book to lead up to this, to tell me what got us to this point. And I think then if I can take what we just talked about, knowing it's society genre from just even the first scene, first chapter, then I can know that there's going to, it's all going to have to do with an imbalance of power and that there's going to be a shift in that balance at some point. And Izzy is going to be weighing in with her spectacular, her, her spectacular, spectacular play of power here with the fire. So that's what I see the story. I agree with you. I think, and I'll probably talk about this the most when we get the character question, but this, I mentioned this off podcast with Jennifer. I have really struggled analyzing this chapter. And I think it was because I was trying to separate my bias of knowing what happens from imagining if I was a first-time reader and why this first chapter would hook me. Because once you know how really nasty Mrs. Richardson is, it changes how this scene works. It's one of those things where from a first read, you are constantly suspicious and questioning why the fires happen. And for I'm in, right there with you. I really very much believe that this is not a story about who lit the fires. It, this story felt to me like a why were the fires lit question. Absolutely. I love that mechanism, that strategy. When you, when you start stories like this, Jennifer knows this. I'm a massive Hamilton fan. And in Hamilton, it's the same structure. Aaron Burr in Alexander Hamilton tells us right away, I'm the guy who killed him. So the question is about why. We know we are leading towards a climax of a fire. And there's so much beauty into that because the whole suspense now gets into the idea of who are these characters and what are they doing to cause this? Is Mrs. Richardson a victim or is she a villain? Now, based on it's this is really interesting, Jennifer, because you mentioned that the first time you did this was the audiobook. I have my book here and I've listened to the audiobook. And the audiobook actually starts with an advertisement of Shaker Heights back in 1963 that's not in the opening of this book. And basically, or at least it wasn't in the opening of my book. And do you have it? Oh, did I skip it? Is it there? Okay. So, T, I'm glad you pointed that out. So, if you read that advertisement, it's not part of chapter one, but it sets the stage for how messed up this town is. It's a quote from a woman in Cosmopolitan. It, it talks about this severe facade of Shaker Heights. And it's from that, having understanding that going into this first chapter, I already have a lot of, don't want to say judgment, but I probably have judgment of these characters and thinking to myself, Lexi in particular bothers me. Like Lexi's attitude towards everything in particular and the use of her word literally really bothers me. 
So already I'm kind of like, all right, like stuck up kid here thinking, oh, our parents will take care of it. Insurance will probably cover the house. All right. Yeah. My patience with this one is already short. So going back to the plot, I am questioning why, but I'm starting to, with little clues, ask myself, well, isn't this kind of obvious why it would happen? But what is the deepness of this? Like it, And that's why I think it felt to me that this plot really was not about who did it. It seemed like it was going to be Izzy, even though Moody questions why would it have been? It could have been someone else. It might not have been Izzy. It does feel that way. And then I think it's all these mysterious things that are also going on with the plot that we can see are bigger than just the fire. There's the court case that has been gossip between everyone. Lexi had slept over Serena's house the night before, and you can see that Lexi was probably favoring Maribel. I'm forgetting the names now. Hold on. Maribel and Maylin. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Maribel McCollin or Maylin, right? So we know that there is something bigger than the story of this family. Because a couple times, if not a few times, we are referenced to this court case that has been going on for a while that dealt with Maribel McCollin or Maine Lynn. And Serena, it seems like in the sleepover, it's insinuated that Lexi probably was saying that it should have been Maribel. And Serena says that's not even her real name. So you can kind of assume that Serena was thinking that the biological mother of Maine Lynn should have ended up with Maine Lynn. But Basically, we know that there's a ruling of some sort that has been gossiped throughout the town, so we can expect that there's going to be a lot of plot around that. Also, there's a very important backstory with Mia and her daughter Pearl dropping off keys from the house because they were the tenants of Mrs. Richardson. There is no conversation, no communication or interaction between Mrs. Richardson and Mia. It is definitely an, I want to drop off this envelope which is going to have more than just, there's going to be more for her to find at the house. But basically she drops off the keys and we know that Mia and Pearl are leaving. So there's a whole story that has to be unpacked there. What's interesting is in the backstory in this first chapter, we don't really know how deep that's going to go. You don't include detail just for detail's sake. You know that it was significant enough that Mrs. Richardson had had a really hard day. And that's why she had to sleep in. But ultimately, we know that there's going to be a story with that. We know there's going to be a story about the family because clearly this family picks on Izzy. And we know that there's going to be a story about the court case. So when you talked about a reason why you loved this story so much was because of all the point of views from this chapter that is packaged in a pretty tight scene. Already, we're seeing that there's going to be a really big canvas to explore here. In a small town. In a small town, right? I thought one of the, this is a minor point, but I love the little, the extra reference to this other house fire that happened years back and how this is going to be the new house fire everybody talks about. So it just sort of is giving this indication there's going to be more scandals in the future. These are just the ones we're focusing on right now. I love that you bring that up because the reputation and how much people worry about the reputation and the ego that is rampant in this town is evident based off of that reference. They talk about how even years later, after being, you know, an all-star athlete, college student, like whatever it was, he's still known as the boy who burned his house down. So yeah, really cool observation there. Okay, third question. You're probably going to love this one based on why you said you loved the book, but it deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? Well, it's deep third, multi-POV, and it's not chapter by chapter change of points of view. You can go, I 
dare I say, does she switch points of view within the same paragraph sometimes? I wouldn't put it past her to do that. Yeah. It kind of, I feel like it gives it a sense of community. We're there, we're sitting in the stands, hearing all the voices around us at once. I don't feel like I'm getting pulled out of the story. It's not head hopping in the way that we're told not to do as writers. This is one of the things that I think proves how skilled Celeste Ng is as a storyteller and as a writer, because very few stories can take such a complicated, omniscient point of view and do so much head hopping and not lose the reader. But it's fascinating to watch her as a model with that, because I never felt confused in this chapter. And I guess part of it is because the point of view, ultimately, you'd have to have a narrator who has an authorial voice. So in order to do that successfully, it has to feel a little bit outside looking in. But at the same time, it pulls us very close to each character with how they're witnessing and experiencing this one event with the fire. Right away, you get the sense of Elena and her anger and judgment and shock. And you get the sense of Lexi, who I already said really irritates me because of how she's handling this whole situation. And Trap, who is equally annoying. And then you have Moody, who feels like there's a little bit more sensibility to him and what he's seeing. And, you know, Mr. Richardson is coming home. And then out there, there's Izzy. So you're waiting for me. I'm eager to figure out who Izzy is and to get into her head a bit. You can very much what you say. I think it benefits the sense of community and it gives you an opportunity to see the insides that make the community a fuller light in a more authentic light, I would say. It allows for each character to have all types of, all sides to them. No character in this book is pure good or pure bad. Mm-hmm. That's why I think this point of view choice is so important, because if you were limited to one point of view, you would have a very biased outlook on how the story is. And really, it's kind of a, a reflection on how all the community works at different times. All right. So the fourth question is with character, I have a lot to say on this one, which character should the reader care about the most? And this is what's tricky is we have to think about, pretend that we haven't read this, but know that we've read this. So which character would you care about the most based on the first chapter? Okay, so I think it's supposed to be Izzy because she's the one who clearly has been bullied. And the one where we don't know where she is, and she's done something so incredibly spectacular that we're dying to know why. And she's young. How did she even come up with it? How did she get there? So I that that's what I feel sort of the, the one what we're steered towards. I like that you say we're steered towards her because the first couple pages are focusing on how Elena wakes up in this fire. And we don't know Alina, and we don't know the history with Mia yet. We don't really know when it says that she had had a really hard day, unless you read, the, of course, the opening with that advertisement. Really, you're kind of assuming that she maybe is more of a victim. I don't know her yet. Why would I believe otherwise? And then the further you go into the story, it's unquestionable about the sense of, okay, I think some people are responsible here. And definitely you start to worry about Izzy. It, I do have a major red flag about Elena when she realizes that she didn't check for Izzy. She already assumed that Izzy is responsible for the fires. And that is 
It's just nasty. I think that's nasty. So it's one of those things where as a mother, I even if you're angry at your child, I think you're checking for your child. So the second that I got to that line, I had major doubts about Elena. And I, when she's standing there alone, watching her house burn down, I don't know what to make of her at that point. I'm kind of like, I think you're a fishy character. So there's that. Unfortunately for me, and I'm being really harsh with her, but the second that Lexi opens her mouth, I have issues with her. I've mentioned I'm not a big fan of her. And Trap, his obliviousness to everything that's going on, like that also just kind of speaks to the self-centeredness that I have issues with. So yeah, all these characters are not standing in good in good light for me, for me to like them. But Izzy, it seems it's almost like the importance of doing all that was to emphasize that Izzy is a victim in the situation, despite her probably undoubtedly being the one who set the fires, needed to almost exasperate these other characters so that we would have even more reason to believe Moody when he explains you all are always picking on her anyway. When they're calling her things like little lunatic and the, and the town calls her that, that's not nice. I think it comes from, I loved the, the show Lost and there's a character Sawyer and he talks about how when a man kicks a dog, the dog only can be kicked so long until they start questioning what they did wrong to deserve it. Those situations where Izzy, it feels like she's been battered for a long time. And it, of course, someone breaks at some point. And I'm with you. I, I think very much the further you go into this chapter, the more and more you realize Izzy is a victim. I do think she burned down these fires. I think this is about why she burned down the fires. And I want to know why, because I care about her at that point. Yeah. And little do you know how much the story is going to build from mm -hmm. that. The fifth question deals with setting. And this is a really important question for Little Fires Everywhere in particular. The question is, where and when does the story take place? This is Shaker Heights and or Shaker Country Estates, actually, in the 90s. I'm looking at the book here. It looks like it was called a couple of different things at, at, along the way, but it's a planned community and its rules and regulations are the Bible. And if you deviate from them, you are seen as a lunatic, perhaps, like Izzy. And Elena Richardson is the paragon of the local rule following. She's the spokeswoman. When you read that advertisement and there's that quote from the woman in Cosmopolitan, that's basically who Elena is. She will do anything to convince herself that how Shaker Heights functions is the right way. And anything, like you said, that would set little fires anywhere is not to be tolerated. Shaker Heights in Little Fires Everywhere almost acts as its own character. That's how rich and important the setting is. The setting, it couldn't really be set anywhere else because it has to be in this very much pruned town that is meant to fit an image and create a false sense of security and purpose. This isn't first chapter, but as you get deeper into the story, you will learn things like they select the amount of diversity that's in the town. And in the beginning, I think it's in that advertisement, they talk about how you get fined, or it might be the second chapter, you get fined if your grass has grown a certain height. The town will come cut it for you and charge you $100. And the houses, depending on what style house, can only be painted a certain color. It is weird. There is no straying from any 
fine line here in this town and you either love it or hate it. You can tell Izzy already feels out of place. And is that lunatic that they call her? But she, basically, that's how most of us would feel when you're trapped into this kind of, it feels like brainwashed world. Fun fact, the community I live in, houses have to be green or brown. And you can't change your house color from one to the other without approval. There are white ones, but only in a certain, like on a certain area. And yeah. the only ones that can be white. Does that feel weird? No, it does. It does. Have, I been brain, have I been brainwashed? No, I don't think you've been. I mean, I, I just went, oh, man, like maybe because color is really important to me. So I see. I think if someone told me that I had to paint my house a certain color, I would paint it the other color just to stick it to them. Well, you don't. I think you don't move here if you must have a yellow house. If right. you must have a yellow house, you live somewhere else. Right, right. That's true. I think that the part that grossed me the, the most out is grass. You know the scene in, and I know that this is based on a real town. I think she grew up, Celestine grew up in a town like this in Ohio. So all I can ever think about is A Wrinkle in Time when it's the gray world and everyone's bouncing the ball at the same, do you know what I'm talking about? It's that they have to bounce the ball at the exact same rhythm. It's, it's a completely controlled town that's gray. And that's when I hear this description, that's just where my mind goes. So maybe that's why I feel like, eh, icky brainwash. But I just see people like acting the same exact way. And for someone like Izzy, who would be very free spirited, that would be suffocating. She would do everything she could to get out of that. It's a perfect setting for a story, though, because these communities exist because they have a, a comfort level, because everything is the same. You have expectations are constantly met and there's just this very evenness to it. The moment you have a disruptive event, an inciting incident, it explodes. It's just a rich opportunity for a, a great story to absolutely. have it in where that's not used to having these sorts of incidents. Yeah, absolutely. In The Dark Knight, I think the Joker talks about how if you do anything that's like majorly chaotic, then people don't lose it. You roll with what that chaos is. But if you, if you threaten one little mayor, but it feels like that. One of those yeah. things where that little thing is something that destroys all of the quote unquote piece of what this town is. So, yeah. The sixth question in the big pictures deals with core emotion. And the question is, how should the reader feel about what's happening? Well, I read it and my instant sense is curiosity, intrigue, and I want to know what, what happens next. But I also feel like I can tell that I'm going to enjoy watching The Mighty Fall. There's probably some Scandinavian term for that, but anticipation of seeing The Mighty Fall. There's some word for that, I'm sure, but that's how I feel. I like how you phrased it, anticipation of seeing the mighty fall. We all, as human beings, have blind spots. One of the reasons why I love books so much, because it gives us an opportunity to see the world in a different perspective, which gives us an opportunity to grow and become more empathetic and human. And that question of why, I'm definitely curious and suspicious. And I do feel there's a disturbance in how power is spread throughout this town and throughout this family. Maybe my core emotion is just because it's directly related to my growing and immediate sense of wanting to protect Izzy or wanting to defend Izzy in some way, even though I don't really know her yet. So it's a little irrational for me to want to do that. But the more and more you start to see individuals in this family 
who have not really had anyone challenge them before have taken advantage, even if it's unintentionally, they've taken advantage of their hierarchy within the household and used that to raise themselves up even more so and secure their position. So that's where I want to see the mighty fall because I'm thinking to myself, this something is weird within this and it feels icky to me. Clearly, someone has been pushed, Izzy, has been pushed far enough to do something as irrational or dangerous, I guess you could say, as light the house with so much intention that it wasn't just let me try to light the house in some way and hope it catches fire. Her goal was to burn it down. And her goal was to burn it down while her mother was still inside. So that's kind of this big thing. We don't know if she knew her mom was inside or not, but her mom was the only one inside the house. So there's something to that, you know. The seventh question deals with stakes. And the question is, why should the reader care about what happens next? Jennifer, what do you think the stakes are in this story? And why should the reader care about that? I think the stakes in the story over the whole course of it is holding a family together. And there's a couple different families. And there's... Well, there's several different families that their stakes are holding the family together. And more globally, it's how do you hold a community together? When you look at stakes, you have to look at each individual who we're given a point of view with and what the stakes might be for them because the house is gone already, right? I do think that there is a desire for everyone to be safe or for Elena at least to be safe in the beginning of this because of this fire that happens. But everyone is out of the fire. So when you're dealing with stakes, it felt like they're dealt a lot with power to me. It felt like there was a lot with security, a false sense of security or whatever that is in reputation. But I think a lot of it goes with relationships as well. And if you care about those relationships, what felt at stake here is you're either going to gain or lose them. And I phrase that because how I decided finally to pick my commandments, I think, deals a bit with that. They're definitely here. It deals a lot with why we feel like we're safe right now, but I don't think we're very safe with the aftermath, depending on how quickly people start to realize what actually just happened in this event. All right, that concludes our big picture analysis. Now we will move into the scene analysis of the first scene. I do think there is a one scene, first chapter structure here. Would you agree with that? One scene, one chapter? I think so. It's kind of split in two. Initially, we have the Mrs. Richardson portion, and then we jump across the street and we're mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. Could It could be argued that there's two scenes in this. I think it's so interesting because I was, because I was struggling so much, I really had a hard time. De deciding what I thought the crisis was for the scene. I was really, really determined to find a crisis for Elena. And the crisis that I came up with was too weak for my decision. So I'll talk about that in a bit. But I was talking to an editor friend of mine and questioning. She, she questioned me because it, since we end kind of picking up where this is, the last chapter picks up where we leave off here. It's kind of this idea of could the scene continue there? I don't think it does. I think that it's its own scene at the very end. But I was kind of like, can I find a scene with Elena that finishes at the end? I don't think I, I, I don't think I found that. But I was curious enough to look because it did feel like Elena has something going on here. And then the kids have something going on here. 
ultimately, I decided to use Elena as a beat within a greater scene because I thought that the crisis that I picked for Elena, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was weak. But yeah, again, I always like to emphasize for listeners and writers who are working on this and using these tools to analyze their own story. My, and this is just my personal perspective, but I'm never concerned so much as we need to come up with the exact same answer so much as can we discuss and defend why we think there is purpose and movement in character and in plot in this scene. I'm more concerned with can you use these tools to help you become more confident that the details that you've left in the scene are purposeful versus us coming up with the copy and pasted answers. That's not as interesting to me. So that's my personal perspective of it. I like to use them as tools to help us challenge our perspectives and find an argument that we feel very confident with going forward. So it'll be fun to go into this and compare. Before we do that, I do like to look at a couple of Socratic questions that I have adapted from StoryGrid scene analysis templates that I like to use when I analyze scenes. These are not verbatim StoryGrid. So if you go and look at a StoryGrid scene analysis template, this will not be the exactly same sentence that they state, but the idea, the context of it is the same. The first question deals with characters and the literal action. I'm asking myself on the most literal scale, what has changed based on the story event that's happening in the scene, the action of the scene, what has changed from the beginning to the end? So what's literally happening here, Jennifer? When I got this question, I actually broke it up into two pieces. One, because of what I just said, there's the Mrs. Richardson part. And it's funny, I keep referring to her as Mrs. Richardson and you refer to her as Elena and we should probably talk about that later. Yeah. And one for the kids. So Mrs. Richardson is sleeping late because she feels she deserves it. She awakens to find the house on fire and ends up on the lawn alone, contemplating the fact that her youngest daughter was the culprit. The way I see this, we saw a shift from her sort of seemingly taking back control of her life by deciding to sleep late because she had a bad day and ending up completely helpless mm -hmm. on the lawn alone. So it's a pretty big shift for her. I didn't see nearly the same shift with the kids. They're off doing what they love to do. One was with their best friend. One was playing basketball because he loved basketball. One was at the library where he likes to go. And they got rushed home not knowing what was happening and, and then ended up talking, as you said, somewhat amused that their sister had burned the house down. Well, this is why I had so much trouble, Jennifer, because for me, the change impacted Elena to me. The kids, with the exception of Moody, the kids don't even care. They find it comical. Their house is just burned to the ground. They think, whatever, we'll stay in a hotel and insurance will pay for it. It's not a big deal to them, which is bizarre. There's that. And then it's Elena or Mrs. Richardson. There is something significant about her. She very much, I, I think you, you said it perfectly, she's trying to take back control and she feels like she's done that successfully, which is why she sleeps in. And then all control is gone by the end of this. Literally, you know, Lexi says, literally, the clothes on her back are the only things that she has. She doesn't even have her own shoes. She's in her son's shoes. So everything is up in flames on the most literal scale. If I were to say the change in, on the most literal level, I'd say control and security in her home to all loss of control of a burned home. What's literally happening, Elena is watching her house burn to the ground. That's what I would say this is. 
And I think that packages the whole scene, whether or not the kids come in or not. Like basically, you could say Mrs. Richardson and her family watch the house burn down. That's like the literal level. They go from having a home to not having a home. That's how I would say the changes. Okay. And then within that, how do the commandments work? Because that's one thing that I was trying to figure out and why I really wanted a link, which is, you know, I'm going to start catching myself. Now I wanted Mrs. Richardson to have the crisis question because it felt like she was the central character in the scene, but the crisis that came up for her was weak. The second question does deal with character. Who's the main character in the scene? What do they want? And why do they want this? And then ask yourself after that, if you can, on an internal scale, on the emotional level for the character, what do you think has changed? I think you've stated it for Mrs. Richardson already in your previous answer. Yeah, she was trying to shake free of whatever it was that was pushing her down and take back control. And she thought she was there. The fire disrupted all of that. So I, I think that she seemed bewildered at the end. Yes. And this is where I'm hoping that my bias of knowing what happens in the story doesn't infiltrate my analysis of the scene. But I guess in a way, if you need to understand how small picture speaks to big picture, it shouldn't harm my analysis. But I see the internal shift as something probably along the lines of a false sense of security or relief, maybe even because it seems like when Mia drops off the keys, that's what allows her to sleep. So relief in some way to disarray. I think bewilderment was another great word there. But it's also disarray and an anger. I think there's great anger there because she's really mad at Izzy. And when I do these chapters, I this is kind of a warning of spoilers. So if you haven't read this, then maybe skip over this part. But the end of this book picks up the evening of this day. And the last page I'm ruining it for you. Sorry, everyone. Turn away now if you don't want this. But the last page basically deals with Mrs. Richardson has gone through the day angry. She talks about she went through the whole day angry at her daughter. And then she has a realization that creates this desperate sense of fear that she will never see her daughter again, which is really interesting because in the first chapter, only Moody questions that. It seems like Lexi and Trap are pretty confident that Izzy will come back or the parents will find Izzy and she's going to be severely punished. So it seems like kind of like a slap on your hand type of situation. And it is far gone from that. It's really interesting to see how Mrs. Richardson, she is delusional, right? She doesn't have a prescriptive arc. In the last moment of this story, there is an inkling of, can she change? And I won't state specifically that, but this is like a last thought that maybe because she's realized why she treated Izzy so poorly, there is this desperation, but it's delusional. Because she is not, she still is failing to recognize that Izzy might choose to not want a relationship with her. And I think that that's really what makes this book amazing for book discussion, among many other reasons. For that character change, I think I want to follow Elena or Mrs. Richardson there because that seems like the most obvious, which is why I struggled with the commandments so much. Because if that is my literal and character change, I want the commandments to reflect that. And I felt like the crisis was not 
Elena. So, so we'll talk about that in a second. And the third final question, this is more of a big picture question. And it says, how does the change in the scene impact the big picture, particularly the main value shift? So if we're dealing with a society story, this main value shift will probably be similar in some way along the words that deal with power struggle, because we're dealing ultimately with the power struggle. What do you think the shift is in this first chapter? Well, I, as I said, I saw it as a, a shift in power. Izzy taking power, possibly Mia and Pearl taking power away from Mrs. Richardson. And something led up to that. So you finish the scene, the chapter, knowing that you're going to dive into a story that's going to go the opposite direction of what we just saw. We just saw power lost. Yes. We're going to see, we're going to see how the powerless became powerful. I really like that that flip there. It gives it energizes the beginning of the story and fuels that question of why. Why is going to be inevitably tied with how, right? So we know we know something's going to happen. The whole story is about why with this power shift, and then also the scene by scene level is how it happens, right? Right. And I think that I think it says what we're going to see in every chapter is a power shift. Mm-hmm. On the big picture level, at least. And that's really important to note. I do like to encourage writers to define what they think is a value shift in a scene. And then I also like to back that up with don't fester over the perfect words. Because at least I know when I started doing scene analysis, I sat way too long. I delayed going to the next scene way too long because I felt like I had to find the perfect word to describe a value shift. And ultimately, no one is going to analyze your story on this level, unlikely, unless you are writers trying to figure it out. So it's that idea of like, sometimes you just need to pick a word, right? And I know words are powerful. And if you can get the right word, it will feel a lot more satisfying in your argument. I change my analysis of scenes all the time. The more that you spend time with story, I could, in a week, read this again and have changed my scene analysis. You know, hopefully not. I think I, you know, will have it. Ultimately, we need to be open for things to shift. And if you feel that you're stuck because you're not figuring out the perfect words, just describe it blankly. You know, you could say something along the lines of Elena is dealing with some sort of desperation and lost sense of power to or feels relieved because of her stored power to Elena has completely lost everything and is desperate. Using that as an example of that being messy. The goal is to not have that be your final value shift words but use it as a way to describe it and move forward, right? Because I don't want you to get caught up on something that may or may not help you, but it's there as a page marker for you to figure out. When I was learning Story Good working with you originally a couple of years ago in the masterclass, it was very freeing after having read the book. And it was very freeing to hear you say, don't feel like you have to have these specific words or have this specific spectrum that you're going to use. As long as you can explain that there was a change, you know you've got something. If you can't even explain it in messy words, then you know you may need to step back and look at what you've written a little bit more closely. So it is very freeing to know that you're not stuck with these rules and regulations. I'm glad that it freed you. Helps you move forward. <laughs> All right. So with that, let's go into the commandments. We'll work through the, the five commandments and signing incident. I call it turning point. It might be, other people might know it as turning point progressive complication crisis or crisis decision, climax and resolution. So the inciting incident 
is an unexpected disturbance that either changes the way the character tries to achieve their goal or want or creates that want or goal. So what do you think is the unexpected disturbance in this scene that works as an inciting incident? The house is on fire while Mrs. Richardson was intentionally sleeping in because she deserved it. It woke her up. Basically, I got to the conclusion of where yours was. After we go through this, I'm going to explain how I think Elena would work or Mrs. Richardson would work with these, but I'm with you. Inciting incident, the most unexpected disturbance in this is the fire. They describe the fire for probably two pages, maybe three pages, and what's happening. And they go through all of what Mrs. Richardson did to react to the fire and her waking up to the smoke alarm and looking for the children by Izzy and coming out and staring in, the, in that blue bathrobe and traps, shoes, and things. So I would call that all the inciting incident. And then we move into the, or I guess that'd be in, the inciting incident, maybe with progressive complications that then eventually build to a turning point. And a turning point is an action or revelation that the main character faces. And the main detail that I like to say about turning points is that it needs to force a character into a crisis decision. And a crisis decision or a crisis is different than any other decision in the scene because even to ignore a crisis leads to a consequence. A consequence isn't always negative. It could be positive. It's not in this case. But I think ultimately the idea here is that the turning point, that action or relation, forces a character into a situation that even if they ignored their crisis, there is a consequence to it where other decisions can be dealt with in a less extreme way. So that's the defining factor that they look for for a turning point. What did you think, Jennifer? Well, I thought the turning point here, okay, so let's say we ended up where she's standing on the lawn in the robe and the shoes looking at the house, which is lost. And she's alone. So to me, the turning point was the kids showed up, the kids that she was wondering, how is she going to find her sons to let them know what happened? And they show up and that, and so she was no longer the only family member there. Now, of course, they're across the street. And that leads to what I had as the crisis, which is stated in the, in the chapter as, quote, someone should go over and stay with mom. And it was Lexi who said that. So the crisis is, do the kids go over to their helpless mother? And as you mentioned at the very beginning, nobody said anything and nobody did anything. They just moved along in their conversation. So it yeah. did have consequences, big consequences. And I'm with you. And this is really interesting because this first chapter is seven pages long. And that line, someone should go over and stay with mom, Lexi said, but no one moved, is one sentence. And then there's another sentence. And then there's a paragraph. And then one final sentence. And that's the end of the chapter. So a lot happens before that line. Some of it is backstory, masterfully woven, purposeful backstory. We need the backstory to understand bigger things that are going on. It's not backstory for backstory's sake. It has to exist in the scene based on reflections of what's happening within it, within the present moment. But I think this is my main thing when I was trying to figure out the five commandments was because I was trying to find five commandments that happen in the present day. and. When I'm looking at what's happening in the present day, I didn't feel like I had a strong crisis other than this. 
do you want to go stand over with mom or not? No one wants to go stand over with her. And the consequences to me, because the climax is the direct action that the characters take based on their crisis. So the climax in the scene, it actually happens all in one line. She asked that, but no one moved. And then the resolution is they continue to have their conversation. So basically, I'd say the resolution then deals with trap. Or I could call him trap. It's trip. Whoops. I keep messing that up. Sorry. I would, I would not have noticed either. Yeah. Probably not. (laughs) Maybe he would because it dealt with him. Whoops. That was way into the podcast that I caught myself. (laughs) Sorry about that. So Trip, now I'm holding it up and remembering here. Trip and and Lexi, as a resolution, continued to think about themselves and assume that it's, it's Izzy who lit the fire. And they are amused at the idea of Izzy coming home or mom and dad finding Izzy and punishing her. And Moody, on the other hand, is in a resolution of last line, what makes you so sure they'll find her? Moody asked. So Moody's resolution where he sits at the end of the scene, he's really starting to become the next Izzy in a way, like not to that extreme, but his worldview has shifted, I think, by the end of this. There's a little hope with Moody's character, I think, because that he started to recognize some things that maybe were holding him back more so than the other kids. This is drastically different, by the way, than the TV show. And another reason why I like the book way more than the TV show, the TV show is interesting, but to me, the, the ending is is different and I don't like what they did for an ending oh, because, have you I seen it? I didn't watch it, no. Oh yeah, they, they change it. They change oh, it. I, don't, I typically don't watch shows made from books that I liked because yeah. I about the changes. Yeah, because... Most likely the book is always better, right? And yeah, really this, I'm not going to say what the exact change was. I could tell you off podcast, but I think I really struggled because I loved this book so much. I really struggled with the change that they made at the ending because I felt like it defeated some of the purpose of certain characters and what they served in this story. I thought that Izzy and Moody do it enough for us in this story. And I always like to play around in my own mind of, how did the adaptions work? Why did they make those changes? And I couldn't really figure out why they would make that change. But they did. Anyway, with the resolution, the characters, it seems like Lexi and Trip, Trip, are, <laughs> are still oblivious to any severity of the situation. Moody questions if Izzy's ever going to come back at all. Mr. Richardson hasn't even made it home yet. Mrs. Richardson is watching her house burn down in flames and it looks like she's aghast and then later we'll learn at the very end of the book she's angry the rest of the day and she doesn't really come to until the last lines of the whole book so there's a lot going on there i want to say real quick i really wanted to find five commandments for mrs richardson and the only crisis that i could figure out was if you this is why it doesn't work the inciting incident for me originally when i when I tried to force this, I thought maybe the inciting incident can be a medias race that's told through backstory in the sense of Mia dropping off the keys because that would mean that she sleeps in. And then I would say the turning point is the house on fire. But then her crisis is I had look for the kids or don't look for the kids, you know, or, or look for the kids. But see, like, this is why it's weak because yeah. then it would kind of deal with this thing of your house is on fire. It feels like your decision is a reaction. Like what would be the other side of that crisis? Stay in the house, you know? Or I guess right. if, the, if the kids were missing, maybe that could be a turning point. Does she continue to look for children? 
in the house or does she get out? Like maybe you could do it like that. The climax would be that she notices that the kids are gone and gets out of the house. And then the resolution would be the whole scene, like the whole following of the scene. I don't know, because that's why I had so much trouble, because I really felt like the change in the scene on the literal character and big picture level. And you mentioned this to me early off podcast is because Mrs. Richardson, Elena, is the central character in the scene. She is what holds all these pieces together. Based, You don't even know it, but the trial, Mia and the kids, she is the focal point of the chaos that has happened. She is the reason for ultimately this house burning down. She's the biggest influence. So I really wanted to figure out what that would be. But do you see, do you see my conundrum here? Because that crisis felt weak to me. I tried, you mentioned, I tried to think of something and the closest I could get was a decision that wasn't really quite presented. And it was, should I look for Izzy? That wasn't a decision she made. So it can't be a decision if, she, if it's acknowledged that she didn't even think about it. Yes, I love that you brought that out because this is something that I have done and I've I've had to catch myself the more and more that I've studied scene analysis is implying a crisis question versus one that's existing on page context clues. And I think that because we know characters, we can assume that there are certain dilemmas going on. But even this scene with the idea of should I look for Izzy or not, I don't think that happens until that night, which is its own separate scene. At the end of the book, I do think that you can be put into a crisis question where you're in a state of shock and your crisis will be to do nothing, which sounds counterintuitive because you're supposed to make your characters active, not passive. But I think that there are situations where based on the circumstances, the character might freeze instead of fight or flight. I do think that you can there can be moments like that that happens sometimes and often in those cases, a supporting character will actually act on the crisis. The crisis might belong to someone else. And your protagonist isn't a dead duck. I always like to use that phrase. Like they're not a dead duck in the scene. They have to be emotionally reactive to things in those situations. But yeah, I really strongly believe that the changes, the value shifts in the change are because of Mrs. Richardson. But my crisis felt too weak. So I'm going to have to vote for it being, do you go over there and stand with mom or not? And their choice not to offers so many layers onto this relationship between mother and children. And it supports and amplifies that shift for her, that loss of power. She doesn't have the support of her kids around her. So, I mean, I do think it it goes back to that value shift for her, but I agree. It's an external crisis, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. The right word would be. Regardless, we did get to at least enough points that defended that there's a change, right? That's the big picture. That's the small picture. You mentioned maybe wanting to talk about the difference between me calling her Elena and and you calling her Mrs. Richardson. Do you want to talk about that? Was there anything else that you wanted to point out that really caught your attention with the scene? Well, I always wondered in the book about the use of that that presentation. And I feel in the first chapter it serves a couple of purposes. And one of them is I think it distances you from the character. Mm-hmm. And it makes us not connect with her in a way that might make us more sympathetic. As it's not even, we don't even get a first name. It's not Mrs. Elena Richards. It's just, it's Mrs. Richardson, which makes it seem like she's that old Mrs. whatever living down the street that you see through the window and you try to, you just steer clear of her front yard. So it mm-hmm. just, 
feels like a distancing, which I believe is intentional. It also hints at the formality of this and traditional sort of throwback nature of this community that Mm -hmm. she would have her first name stripped of her and that it's this formal Mrs. Names for people. You bring up great points. I'm really pleased that you continue to call her Mrs. Richardson because that is what she is called in this first chapter. So if you are analyzing the first chapter, that is what you should be using as the name. It's <laughs> not Elena. So it's interesting that I just defaulted into this first name. And as you talked about your reasoning, I'm wondering if my subconscious, I went into Elena because I wanted to find commandments that dealt with her. <laughs> I do feel like she's the central character, her and Mia. This is an interesting debate I had. It would be interesting to get your thoughts on this. When I taught this to my high school students, I always asked them who they thought the main character was. And I had three different answers. And I'm wondering, because if you're looking at the first chapter, usually you can get an idea of who the main character is. In a society story in general, there tends to be an ensemble cast, which there definitely is in Little Fires Everywhere. But that society cast doesn't work unless there is a central protagonist which she's sent there, all the other characters have offshoot characteristics of the central protagonist or offshoot connections to the central protagonist. So someone has to glue everything together. It's one of the things that makes society stories so complicated to write. I mean, every story needs to have purpose in how details are woven together. Everything should come together and dovetail at the end. But ultimately, how do you do this in a cast? Who do you think, Jennifer, is the main protagonist? Well, when you put it like that, I mean, it's easy to think of Mia as that because of the way she connects with all of the characters that we just met. However, Mrs. Richardson's there in the beginning and Mrs. Richardson's there in the end Mm -hmm. and Mia's not. So to me, that says something. And I think it's Mrs. Richardson, but I, I would, and I haven't done the analysis of this, how all of the ensemble is tied into like what bits of her are in everybody. Mm-hmm. I bet I can support that. I think I could probably, I would be able to answer that question for all of the characters. Yeah. But I can see that it's a completely debatable as to whether it's those two or, I don't know that I ever would have said it's Izzy though. I don't think I would say it's Izzy either. I had students who would say Izzy and yeah. is the most important supporting character in my mind. If you say that Mia and Mrs. Richardson are equal parts, a central protagonist, and I can, I could see that argument. I always, I kind of went back and forth a lot. Like the more I read this, is not Mia or is it Mrs. Richardson? To your point, we begin and end with Mrs. Richardson. We also have Mia in the first scene. So she is still there. So she also is a beginning and ending. You see her equally. The only thing that I could think is different is that Mia is the stranger who comes to town. So Mrs. Richardson is going on living her played out life, her very manicured life. And Mia is the one who is the stranger who comes to town who starts to cause change. The person who is shooken the most by the events would be Mrs. Richardson. But I think that you there really is a strong argument of can you say that there's a dual central protagonist? Because it feels like you have Really, they act as opposites of each other. You have Mia and you have Mrs. Richardson, and they are impacting all three of the big plots that are implied in this first chapter. Both Mia and Mrs. Richardson impact the trial. 
both Mia and Richards and Mrs. Richardson impact the family dynamic of the Richardson family. And both Mia and Mrs. Richardson, of course, impact their own relationship in that power shift. All characters need to matter, but the story especially doesn't exist with each of their arcs. And I do think both of them have an arc, Mia for prescriptive and Mrs. Richardson for cautionary. So we see a character who goes through an arc of change where it's going to make her worldview is going to shift in a way that even if she hasn't necessarily gained power by the end, hopefully she'll have a fuller life. And then you have Elena and Mrs. Richardson, who is just delusional. I almost pity her in the last page because I was like, you still don't see it. You still don't get it. And that, I guess, brings us to the end of our analysis of the first chapter of Little Fires Everywhere. I'm really glad I got to do this with you. It's fun to chat, especially with writers that I have known for a while, and it's fun to continue to grow together. Thanks for having me on. It was fun to go back to the book and and pick apart this chapter, which I've done before, but it's been a little while. And boy, I could read this over and over. It's just incredible. I get a lot out of it every time I read even a little bit. She's a good model for you and for everyone. Then always go back to those books that you get more out of it each time. Those are really special books on your bookshelf. Thank you for coming back for another episode on Lit Match. It was so much fun to revisit Little Fires Everywhere in the first chapter specifically of Celestine's wonderful bestseller, Reese Witherspoon Book Club pick, option for film rights and adapted into a TV series on Hulu, amongst other many great accolades that surrounded this book. I hope that today's conversation helped you start to dissect a really complex story in a way that seems digestible and achievable for you to also do as a writer. If there are ever any stories that you would be interested for me to do a first chapter deep dive analysis on, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com or find me at www abigailkperry.com. P.S. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter on abigailkperry.com. Signing up for my email list will ensure that you never miss the latest episodes on LitMatch, and you'll also receive any of the latest writing tips, suggestions, and strategies or publishing news on the book industry that I have and send out to my subscribers. If you're enjoying the show and you haven't taken a couple minutes to rate or review the show, I so would appreciate if you do that. It's one of the best ways to help me continually reach more writers like you who would like to grow their writing craft, learn more about the literary agent research process or the publishing business in general, and ultimately start blending their passion with business. Until next time, I hope that you are having fun and learning and growing with this podcast. If you're in the writing process, enjoy it. Continue to persevere. If you're in the query trenches, don't give up. I know that it can be a grueling experience, but also remember that it only takes one yes. And I hope that by working on your manuscript so it's the best that it can be, that yes comes from your dream agent. If you've got a literary agent, please reach out. I'd love to hear and also keep me updated if your book is coming out or even if you need help. I'm here to support and celebrate you. And I truly cannot wait to hear and celebrate your book when it comes out.